think it was on Friday, uh, Linda texted me and said, hey, uh, the baseball game's going to be on during the picnic. Is that a problem? I said, oh, no, the game's not on Sunday. It's on Saturday, so it won't be a problem at all because I'd be at the baseball game. And then I realized she was right. It's actually on Sunday and uh, today. And as I thought about it, I thought, gosh, it's the rain. There's the game. Maybe we should just cancel it. But then I really honestly began to think, and I thought, you know what? It is so hard for us to find a time where we can just be together. And why not just rain or shine, show up, and just enjoy each other's company? If you want to watch the game, we'll have it. If you want to just sit around and visit, you can do that. Bring your blankets. I don't know how much furniture we'll move around. We may just throw blankets on the floor, have a picnic inside. So please do that, and let's just enjoy the chance to be together, because it just doesn't happen often enough. So, This morning, we're going to continue in our study of Acts, and as you've probably recognized, in many ways, Acts is a book of firsts. We see the first fruits of the Spirit being poured out on the disciples. We hear the first sermon ever preached by the apostles, what I believe to be the most important sermon anyone has ever heard. Peter clearly proclaims the message of the gospel, and the results speak for themselves, right? We learn that 3,000 new believers in one day joined the 120 disciples to become the very first Christian church. As I thought about what Matt taught last week, I thought, boy, how tempting would it have been to, to linger in chapter 2 if you were the early church. You know, where they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. It says that no one had an unmet need because they had everything in common. In fact, if someone had too much stuff, they would just sell it off so that there was enough money for everybody to have what they needed. It says that everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And that every day, they saw the evidence of God's hand at work in their lives. Every day, the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. That every day, they were filled with gladness and were continually praising the Lord. How awesome would that have been? I mean, what would that be like if that was our every day, right? How easy it would have been to just linger right there in chapter 2. But God did not call his disciples, nor did he call us to live only within the loving fellowship of the church. Our mission is not to be filled with gladness in isolation from the world around us. We are being equipped in the church in order that we might make an impact in the world. Jesus said, go. Go and make disciples. Go to the uttermost parts of the world, to Jerusalem, to Judea, to to all throughout the world. Go. It would have been very appealing for the early church to just linger there in chapter 2. A bit of nice to just put a period there, right? And they all lived happily ever after. Just call it good. But that wouldn't be good. 
Because there was work to be done. The work of Christ must continue through the life of his disciples. I want you to think of it this way. I don't want you to consider the life of Christ as some isolated event that took place in human history where where Jesus came, God incarnate in the flesh, where he lived, where he died, was buried, rose from the grave, and then ascended into heaven because he was done. Because that is not what happened. The Spirit of God poured out into the life of his disciples is the life of Christ continuing his work in us. It is not a spirit from Christ, like an added bonus to our salvation. It is, in fact, the spirit of Christ, the work of God continuing his powerful work through us. You see, Jesus did not disappear at his ascension, never to be seen again. In fact, Jesus is alive, and he is made visible through his church. In church, that should be a part of our every day. And so let's just ask the Lord that he might help us understand the significance of what that might look like as, it, as we look at his word this morning. So let's pray together. Lord, I think sometimes we do stand in awe of the early church and we wonder what would it be like if that was our every day, but yet we miss out on what could be our every day. The Spirit of Christ at work in us, making himself visible to the world in which we live. Lord, we want that to be the description of our every day. So as we open the truth of your word this morning, would you speak deeply to our hearts, to the praise and glory of your name, the mighty name of Jesus, in whom we ask these things. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, we're going to pick up where Matt left off last. So in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a certain man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. Now, if you think about it, back in chapter 2, we learned that the disciples had a routine and they would do things every day. And one of the things we know is they went to the temple every day. In chapter 2, verse 46, it says, And day by day, continually with one mind in the temple. We also know that during this time there were miraculous things going on. It says in verse 43, And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So, Now when we go into chapter 3, we see what happens in the temple and we look at one of the miracles that takes place. It says that Peter and John were going to the temple in the ninth hour. Now, that's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon and it actually would be a time when a lot of people would be going to the temple because this is when the evening sacrifices begin. So the religious Jews are going into the temple to 
offer their sacrifices and to take some time to pray. And as they made in their, were, their way to the temple, they encountered a beggar who was asking for money. My family and I were in New York City last week, and pretty much everywhere we went, there was people asking for money. It's an awkward situation, especially when you're a tourist, because you don't know if these people are just taking advantage of tourists, and then if you did give them money, I mean, how are they going to use it? But maybe I'm supposed to. It's just, I don't know. It's awkward, right? But that's not the situation here. Because clearly, this man has a legitimate need. He was born with a disability. It says that he was lame, which means that he could not walk. And I believe from the description, he very likely is paralyzed from the waist down. Because it says that he was placed, he was carried and then placed at the gate leading into the temple. Now, everyone knew this man. Because it says he was there every day. And in that culture, the religious Jews felt like they had an obligation to care for those in need like this man. There was no governmental support. There was only religious support. So the religious people felt a a spiritual responsibility to to do something to help this man. Look at what it says in verse 3. And when he, the man, saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. And Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze upon him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive, to receive something from them. See, it's not uncommon when you see someone who's begging for money that they don't often look you in the eye. Because most often there's a sense of shame that they're having to ask for something from someone that they can't provide for themselves. So when Peter and John see this person, maybe maybe he saw some compassion in their eyes. There was something that allowed him to ask them specifically for their support. And when Peter and John see this man, it says they... Stop. They didn't just toss coins into a cup and then just keep walking like I'm sure everyone else did. They stopped. And they had a conversation. And the first thing they said was, look at us. In other words, lift your head. Don't be ashamed. Look at our eyes. Listen to what we have to say. While others were showing this man pity, The apostles wanted to validate his worth. Others saw him as a a crippled man who was a religious obligation, and the apostles saw him as a person created in the image of God. The most this man expected at all was just a small donation, but he's about to receive from the Lord more than he ever could ask or imagine. Look at verse 6. Peter said, I don't possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately he came to his feet. 
and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. (laughs) Peter says, in the name of Jesus, the Nazarene, walk. And then I think in that moment there was silence. Nothing happened. Nothing visible. There was no flash of light. There was no puff of smoke. And I'm sure at some level the the man who was crippled looked at the apostles and said, okay, now what? So Peter is the one who reaches down, grabs the man by the hand, and lifts him to his feet. And please don't miss the magnitude of this miracle. Luke is a doctor, right? Luke is a doctor. So he's very intentional in what he says. In verse 7, he says, His feet and his ankles were strengthened. You see, this man had been lame from birth. He's never walked a day in his life. Which means his muscles would have been atrophied to the point that they were non-existent. He's skin and bones. His, his feet would have been contorted in such a way by the, the spasms that would have been a part of his condition. And likely, the bones of his ankles would have fused together. But in an instant, he was completely restored and he leaps. He leaps for joy. Now, I used to tell my patients in physical therapy that it's not fair how fast you lose it compared to how long it takes to gain it. You know, I'd have these macho athletes who were injured, and they would literally have to learn how to walk again after a major surgery. And even when their strength returned, they had to work extra hard just to regain their normal balance and, and, and coordination, especially if they're an athlete. That didn't come easy. It's really not how... It's not fair how fast you lose all those things compared to how long it takes to retain them back. But just the opposite happened with this disabled man. He never had it to begin with. But in an instant, it was completely restored. He was walking. He was leaping He had all the balance and coordination of a man who'd been that way his entire life. And he was praising God. Not praising Peter and John. He was praising God. He recognized the Lord as the power behind his healing. And more than that, I believe he recognized Jesus as the source of his healing. Because Peter said very clearly, in Jesus' name, walk. In other words, by his authority, be healed. Now, it saddens me that in our world today, we can't hear those words and not think of some wild TV evangelist, right? In the name of Jesus, be healed. And then completely healthy people fall to the ground. And it's because people like that want you to be impressed with them. 
they want the attention on themselves, and that's not what's happening here. This is a miracle with a message. And that message is centered on the saving work of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they are taking note of him and as, as, as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple and beg for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them. The so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. It says the people were filled with wonder. Now don't miss that word. Think about what that means. What does it, what does it mean when they're filled with wonder? It means that they had questions. They had questions that they could not logically resolve in their own mind. They wondered because what they witnessed just didn't make logical sense. There was no explanation. This is the one that they'd seen every day, completely disabled and unable to walk. And here he is, right before their eyes, leaping for joy and praising God. See, they knew who this man was. They walked by him every day. He was the object of their pity. But in this moment, it became evident he was the object of God's grace. He's been healed. And I believe that miracle came with a message. And that message is a message of salvation. That miracle is a picture of salvation. It is a divinely ordained restoration that brings new life taking what is deformed and twisted by sin and making something new. Doing what is impossible with man all of a sudden in an instant becomes possible with God. This miracle came with a message and Peter's about to make that explicitly clear. Look at what he says in verse 12. But when Peter saw this, being the crowd that is gathered, he replied to the people, men of Israel, Why do you marvel at this? And and why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of all of you. Remember, the temple area was busy. There was a lot of religious activity. As I mentioned before, this was a particular busy time because it was the beginning of the evening sacrifices. But now all that attention centered on one man. A crowd had gathered, and so Peter stands up to speak. And when he does, he begins with two questions. The first question is, why do you marvel at what you see? The second question is, why do you look at us as if we have the power to do what you see. 
See, Peter asked the first question because this is not something that they've never seen before. Jesus did this very same kind of miracle and a whole lot more. It's not like this is the first time this has ever happened. They know that. So why are you marveling when it's already been done before your eyes? And more than that, why are you looking at us as if we have some divine power in and of ourselves? See, Peter turns their attention to where it should have been all along. He says, don't be impressed with us because what you see is the evidence of God's hand at work. The very same God you are here to worship has now made himself known. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And how he speaks of God as he introduces him in this way is of great significance because he's saying something about who God is. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know him. He's the covenant-keeping God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, And Jacob, a God who is faithful to fulfill what he promises to do. You see, Peter's telling him, God made a promise to our forefathers. He made a promise that through their seed, he would bless the earth. That was a promise made to Abraham, carried on to Isaac, carried on to Jacob. And that promise has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the servant of God, commissioned to bring a divine blessing. But God's own people disowned the one that he sent to deliver them. Instead of accepting the one who was holy and righteous, they chose instead a murderer. They put to death the prince of life, But it says God raised him from the dead. Jesus is alive. And he's still at work. And what you see is evidence of his presence among you. That's what Peter is trying to communicate. The faith that comes through Christ has given this man perfect help. The miracle has a message. And that message is that God's work of redemption is no less miraculous. That physical restoration that they see is a visible picture of the spiritual redemption that takes place when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's a miracle with a message of salvation through faith in Christ alone. Look at how he continues in verse 17. And now, brethren, I know that you act in an ignorance, just as the rulers also did. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of his, all the prophets, that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. In many ways, Peter's saying, being ignorant does not absolve you from guilt. Being ignorant does not absolve you from guilt, but it does provide an opportunity for God to extend His mercy, and that's exactly what He's doing. 
as you look back at this section of Scripture, I want you to notice all the different ways Peter identifies Jesus. In verse 13, it says that Jesus is God's servant. If you write in your Bible, I would just underline that. Verse 14, God's servant. Or excuse me, 13. And then in 14, he says, the holy and righteous one. Underline that. And then in verse 15, he says, the prince of life. And then in verse 16, he identifies Jesus as the Christ. So clearly, Peter is going to great leaks to to help the people understand the significance of who Jesus really is. He's the one who lived in accordance with God's will. He's been divinely commissioned. He has divine authority because he has divine nature. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is righteous because he is just, tempted in all things, and yet without sin. In the original language, the word in verse 15 for prince is more literally author or source. In fact, if you have NIV, isn't that what it says? Jesus, the author of life. He's the Christ. The Messiah, the Savior that God had promised through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. Just like Peter did in his first sermon, he's going to the same effort to make sure they don't miss the significance of what he's trying to say. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. A divine Redeemer. He is God incarnate. And don't miss that. Look at verse 19. Repent, therefore, and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Now, Peter gets real personal with his fellow Jews at this point in his sermon. He's telling them that God is giving them another chance to see the truth. And they don't want to miss this one. They failed the first time by disowning the one that God had sent to deliver them. The miracle they witnessed was a visible picture of God's deliverance being made present before them. But that redemption, that miraculous work of God seen in this man, made possible in their heart, can only be experienced if they choose to repent. Repent. They must return to God by changing their mind about who Christ is. Peter's not asking them to be more faithful in their religious activities. He's not telling them to go back and offer more sacrifices. Peter is calling them to put their faith and trust in Christ alone. He wants them to see that salvation is through faith in Christ alone. 
His blood was shed, as he goes on and says, so that their sins were wiped away or, or blotted out or whatever way you want to describe, completely forgiven. Because there is no other name under heaven given unto man by which we can be saved. But then Peter goes even further and he begins to kind of outline some promises of God that are yet to be fulfilled. In in verse 19, he talks about a a, a time of refreshing as a result of, of Christ's return, His second coming. He says in verse 21, a period of restoration. Just as God has promised, as He goes on and says, through the mouth of the holy prophets. Now what Peter is describing here is of great significance. He's reminding his fellow Jews, whom he is speaking to, of God's kingdom plan. A future plan for the nation of Israel based on an eternal promise. I want you to think back to chapter 1. When the disciples turned to Jesus before he had ascended into heaven, and what did they ask him? They asked him, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel. Is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And remember what Jesus said. He said, it's not for you to know the time or the seasons that have been fixed by the authority of the Father. You see, they were asking a question that was on the mind of every Jew. And Jesus is affirming, yes, there is a plan to restore the kingdom to Israel, but you must trust in the Lord's timing. And it's important to understand that that plan itself is not a secret. That seems to be Peter's point here. When he tells, it is spoken through all the prophets, throughout all of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ will return to restore the kingdom to the nation of Israel. A national repentance will usher in a divine blessing when Christ, who will have returned, reigns over His people Israel. He's talking about the millennial kingdom. When God's promises to Israel will be completely fulfilled. And that's really important to the audience to whom He is speaking to. Now, you and I, as a Gentile read through those verses, and we breeze right past them because we think, well, he's talking about the nation of Israel, and that really doesn't apply to us, and so we just kind of move on. But don't miss what he says in verse 21. Look at that again. Talking about Jesus, who before he returns, must receive until that period, heaven must receive. What he's talking about there, when he's talking about that, that heaven must receive, he's talking about the ascension of Jesus Christ. He's talking about having what the, the, the apostles, the disciples, those 120 witnessed when Jesus ascended into heaven, was received into heaven by God. And I believe that, that Peter, in many ways, is making a connection to what he talked about in his first sermon when he quoted that prophecy from Joel when he said in the last days the Lord will pour out his spirit on 
his people. And you'll remember when we looked at that passage, we said that's Pentecost. Pentecost marks the beginning of the last days that ultimately lead up to the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is a day of divine judgment. Peter doesn't want his people to overlook the window of opportunity when God is extending his mercy. Because there is judgment coming. Look at what he says in verse 22. Moses said, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So don't miss what Peter's doing here. The first thing he does is he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where God says he will raise up a prophet like Moses. And just think about what that means. What does it mean to be a, a prophet like Moses? When you think about Moses, for most people, what comes to mind first? Other than Charlton Heston, right? What comes to mind? Ten Commandments, right? Moses was the one through whom God spoke to his people as to what they should do to obey. Jesus is a prophet like Moses because he very much did the same thing. In fact, you may remember in the Sermon of the Mount, in the Mount, on the Mount, he said, you've heard it said, quoting an Old Testament command, but I say to you. He goes on and says, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Peter is saying, God's judgment is ultimately based on what you believe about who Jesus Christ is. God's judgment is ultimately based on what you decide about who Jesus is. So that every soul, as he says in verse 23, who does not heed his words, speaking of Jesus, the prophet like Moses, will be destroyed. Peter is speaking to his fellow Jews and saying, look, of all the people on the earth, no one should know this better than you. All the prophets spoke of the coming judgment of those who reject the Messiah. And don't miss this. Jesus is the Messiah. And at the appointed time, He will be the judge. His blessing that God promised can only be realized through your repentance. So that he might rescue you from your wicked ways. As I have thought about 
our journey through Acts thus far, one of the things that has struck me that I've tried to understand is why was there such great conversion? I mean, 3,000 people in one day put their faith in Christ, joining those 120 disciples to become the, the first Christian church. And I thought, man, I could preach for a lifetime and likely won't see those numbers. What is it? I think at least in part is because the audience that Peter was speaking to understood the reality of God's judgment. But I also realized that's a bad word in our culture today, right? We don't talk about judgment. In fact, if I don't like what you're saying, I'll just say, you can't say that, you're judging me, right? That's how we deflect things. We even go as far as oftentimes to consider the church as a judgment-free zone. I think there's a real danger in that. Because the Old Testament is filled with the evidences of God's judgment. I'm reading through the Old Testament right now as a part of my daily devotion, that chronological Bible that I've told you guys about before. And I've just recently read the section about Ahab and Jezebel. Woo! You want to talk about some wicked, wicked people whom God tried to gain and call to repentance, but man, they were wicked people who refused to repent. And so it describes one day what happens to Jezebel. Her own people threw her her out the window of a tower, and the Bible's pretty graphic. It says that her blood was splattered against the wall of the tower, and then she was trampled underfoot. It said that later on they went to go retrieve her body, and all they found was two hands, two feet, and a head. And then it said, as the word of the Lord through the prophet spoke, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. Why? Because God had warned her about a coming judgment if she refuses to repent. See, the Israelites realized the reality of God's judgment for unrepentant sin, but I'm just not so sure that we take it all that seriously these days. We are more prone to tolerate sin when we don't fear the Lord. We make decisions based upon what's acceptable in the world around us instead of what's right in the eyes of God. We trust our own opinion more than we rely on God's Word. But the Bible is so clear, you guys. It says explicitly, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And not because God is capricious, that He's unpredictable, that He just might fly off the handle at any time if we're not watching. Because that's not what we see happening in the testimony of Scripture. We fear the Lord because we know He's holy, He's righteous, He's just. And because of that, our sin demands His judgment. We either run to the cross where we find the one who took our judgment upon himself. Or we take that judgment upon ourselves and go our own way. See, maybe if we better understood the judgment of God, we might more appreciate the forgiveness of God. After all, 
Savior's not all that important if sin is not all that big of a deal. The man who is lame leapt for joy, praising God. And that miracle is a picture of our salvation. His reaction should be a reflection of our response. Salvation is a miraculous redemption that brings new life takes what was deformed and twisted by sin and makes something new. It removes judgment. Because it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because there's no judgment zone? No, it's because the judgment was taken upon Christ. And He paid the penalty for our sins that we deserved. And I think if we truly understood our salvation that way, then we wouldn't play with sin. Because we would want to live in the light of His forgiveness and grace. We would want His life to be made visible in our life as a part of our everyday. Wouldn't that be the least we could do for the one who's rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins? Don't miss the magnitude of the miracle of your redemption. Jesus is alive. And He is at work in you. He is at work in us. And that should be a part of our every day. That miracle of redemption really should cause us to leap for joy. Because we've been made perfect in his eyes. Now, let me encourage you to do something this week. I think this is an incredibly powerful passage, and I would ask that you go revisit it again. Just go back through the verses and consider for yourself how they apply to your particular situation. Because, guys, I understand that there are people who hear these words and they're in a really hard place, right? Their, their marriage is struggling. Their family is broken. And they're trying to figure out how this applies to them. And I think some of you are in a place of, of darkness, a place of doubt. And I want you to understand something. God wants to set you free. On a day where we celebrate fathers, I want you to know, you have one who loves you so deeply. And he's inviting you to something better. But you have to trust him more than you trust yourself. You have to rely on his work in you more than your own strength on your own. You have to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Don't miss the magnitude of the miracle of your redemption. One of the things that I can't seem to get past as I keep looking at these passages. Don't miss the fact that the people that Peter is speaking to are the very same people who crucified Christ. Have you ever thought that God was angry and belligerent? You haven't read this book because he's inviting the very people who crucified his son to experience his forgiveness and grace. 
He will not quit. He pursues us so fervently. There's a passage in Psalm 145 that I think is what we need to walk away remembering about who God is. It says this, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. All your works give praise to your name, O Lord, and your godly ones, that's us, surely will bless you. He wants none to perish, but all to come to repentance, and that's the Heavenly Father who loves us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power of your word and the evidence of your love and grace that so diligently pursues us. I cannot get past the reality that you were inviting those who crucified our Savior to be forgiven and made new. So, Father, may we not overlook the magnitude of the miracle of our redemption. How we, who were wicked, whose lives were deformed and corrupted by the presence of sin, were instantly made new. And I realize, Lord, like everybody in this room, that we still are challenged to figure out what that looks like in our everyday, but the work is complete. And so, Lord, help us keep coming back to you because we see how you keep coming towards us. And that we find in your presence the fullness of all that you've promised. Our Savior, our friend, our Father, our Creator, our God who loves us. Father, I just pray that on a day like today, it would mean even more to consider who you are in your love for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.